Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Brian Clark, the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, to discuss the new report he co-authored with his colleague, Dan Pat. Unalone and unafraid, a plan for integrating uncrewed and other emerging technologies into U.S. military forces. Uh, as usual, the dynamic duo has struck again. Brian, thanks so very much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here, as always. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the report. Uh, very uh, excited and, and uh, such an incredible array uh, of uh, news for us to get to because I want your analysis on on some of this from the revelation of Anduril's Fury uh, aircraft, which is uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, we've got the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, Dr. Hicks, coming out with her replicator, uh, right? And one of the applications of this is to build larger quantities of, of unmanned uh, uncrewed uh, systems. Um, so I'm, I'm very eager to get into all of that. But before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber uh, Conference and Trade Show that ends today outside Washington. Washington, D.C. Uh, Brian, uh, let's uh, start uh, with uh, the report. What are sort of the key takeaways you guys had uh, on the best ways of integrating uncrewed uh, and other emerging technologies into U.S. military forces, right? Because, I mean, that's the central debate on their role, how they get integrated, and how they actually fit uh, to support any of the strategies that we have in the Western Pacific or anywhere else. Yeah, Vago. And so this this study was funded by the Navy because they were looking for help and trying to figure out how to better field uh, uncrewed systems uh, and you know, provide systems that are going to be more timely, more relevant you know, to what their commanders are arguing for out in the fleet. And, and I think that the, kind of the two big takeaways that we found were um, the DOD needs to increasingly focus on current technologies, what's available today, um, which was something they couldn't do 10 years ago. You know, when the Navy started a lot of its unmanned programs, the, the technology just wasn't there and they had to develop it themselves. But the technology has emerged and evolved and you've got a lot of mature systems that you could leverage both commercially uh, and inside the department or inside other militaries. So you got to take that current technology. And so you see offices in DOD like the DIU pursuing this kind of approach. But the, that gets to the challenge, the other challenge that we have to address, which is integration. So we have to use current technologies and we have to then integrate them with the existing force in a way that's operationally useful. Uh, and that's usually the part that DOD doesn't do very well. So we'll go buy some gadgets, uh, we'll go buy some vehicles and bring them into the force. And then we don't try to combine them with what we have in the military already. And as a result, these things tend to be shoved off to the side, they do their own mission with their own people and have a completely different portfolio than what's happening in the main part of the force. And we never can leverage them to be able to solve the major problems that commanders are arguing they need to solve. Uh, and I think you know that brings up Replicator. I think it's a great example of trying to do that alignment to say, we're going to try to focus on current problems with current solutions, and we're going to focus on integrating those solutions in a way that can actually be employed by our current forces out in the field, um, which is uh, you know no mean feat, right? You got to be able to take these new unmanned systems, make sure their networks work with the forces you've got, make 
make sure that you've got uh, the appropriate logistics and sustainment, and you've got to have the ability to share data between them. And so there's a lot of digital integration as well as physical integration that has to happen if you're going to be able to field these systems uh, to solve near-term problems. Uh, but those are the two major findings of the study is that you know we needed to address current technologies and integration at two areas that the Navy had not traditionally done very well at. And that's part of the reason I think they asked us to do the study. And I, I think we're starting to turn a corner on that within DOD. At least there's a recognition of that problem and, and solutions to try to address them. Um, and what are the problems that need to get solved? I know that you and I have talked about this, right? But it starts with the problems you're getting solved as opposed to, hey, here's the technology that exists. What are some of the yeah. specific problems that need to get solved? Because right. there is still, even though I think that there shouldn't be, and there's a lot of good rhetoric, we're still not hitting these hinge points to take maximal advantage or even to develop exactly the kind of systems that we need for the tasks at hand, right? So we talk about yeah. swarming and smaller, and sometimes right. it's not smaller. I need actually bigger and farther, right? Right. 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 And so you look at, um, I think one thing we found in the study, we went out and talked with uh, combatant commanders and fleet commanders as part of this study. Uh, and the feedback we got from them was, we have things we have to, we have concepts for how we want to solve our operational problems. You know, so uh, it was something that's been out in the press now, which I can talk about, is this idea of the hellscape, you know, where um, Admiral Paparo wants to be able to use unmanned systems to try to make uh, an invasion of Taiwan very difficult for the Chinese. So try to just make the the Taiwan Strait into a into what he calls a hellscape, a frothing, you know, area of unmanned systems that get in the way. Um, there's other concepts like that that are out in the fleet that you can you know talk to people about, but they have these ideas for how they'd like to address some of their operational problems that they're you know dealing with today, um, and they have ideas for how they would like to solve them using un unmanned systems and other systems. Uh, and the problem is they don't have anybody to talk to about that. There's nobody that's really focused on solving their near-term problem because the DoD has got an industrial model for capability development that says, well, we'll look at your problems and tr figure out what those mean in 10 years, and then we'll start an R&D project to develop something that will solve your problem in 10 years. Uh, but you need to have this sort of shorter duty cycle, if you will, this shorter turn uh, development process that you know, does all the same things that your longer term process would do in terms of uh, integrating the, the capabilities together and we actually field them in a way that's that's sustained. Um, and that's something DOD just hasn't done. It's done a lot of short term stuff that's just not uh, fully integrated and fully sustained. And that's kind of where we saw the need for new organization, new process. Uh, the Navy, for its part, is doing that with what they're calling the Disruptive Capabilities Office, uh, which will do a lot of this. They'll, they'll do this sort of and interaction with the combatant commanders. And, Task Force and 59. Task Force 59. Right, right, right. So working with the operational commanders, figuring out what their problems are, I, you know, coming up with some ideas on solutions using current technology, and then working to integrate those solutions in a way that's actually useful for the commander. But that sort of has to operate almost in parallel with what's happening in the longer term development of long term capital assets like uh, manned aircraft and ships. And, and so what are, from your standpoint, the key ways to actually do this? and help move the ball down the field. Yeah, so we saw we found uh, six major functions that that anything any process that does this effort has to be able to do. So the first one is identify the operational problem. The second one is formulate some potential solutions, and that could be done mostly you know through modeling simulation through virtual environments. Digital twins can be very helpful here. Um, then identifying where the solutions are going to come from. So if systems and software have to come from somewhere like a commercial provider or a, within the military within one of the research labs or uh, 
uh, or from another military, you need that function of acquiring those or renting them if you're going to do them in a you know, contractor-operated, contractor-owned sort of contract. Uh, and then the fourth function is uh, this integration function. So in the Navy, Project Overmatch does this. And to a degree, an ABMS does this for the Air Force. So this idea of I need to be able to digitally combine these different pieces together so that they're able to talk to each other through a communication network. They can share the data that they have, and it can be translated into the proper format for all the different systems. Uh, and then you've got the mission planning and command and control to, to operate them. Uh, Task Force 59, you know, to their credit, did a great job of doing this leveraging some commercial providers for the software side of it. Um, and then the uh, the fifth function is you know, have to have somebody that's able to orchestrate this process and fund it. And that's really been the biggest roadblock for the DoD is who's in charge of kind of this shorter time cycle development process that satisfies near-term operational needs. Um, and we haven't really had that. So that's been, you know, an ad hoc set of organizations. So you need to have an organization that's got funding to do these these tasks, uh, and then to buy the initial tranche of systems that are going to go solve the problem. Um, and arguably, that's what's going on right now within OSD as they're starting to reorganize and Replicator, I think, will leverage this emerging organizational construct they've got in, in the OSD staff. And then the sixth function, the last one is, is you got to get a prototype system of system in the field uh, and then evaluate its efficacy. And then the commander can say, it works well enough to solve my problem or to address my problem. We can turn that into a requirement and through middle tier of acquisition, we can make that a program that we can go buy stuff against uh, down the road and we can get that in the budget. So those six, six functions ended up being the key you know, elements of a future process for integrating new technologies into the force. And you're seeing an OSD, them adopt some of these uh, through their new uh, AI2 office in acquisition and sustainment, through the deputy CTO for mission capabilities and R&E, and through the CDAO, the chief data and AI officer. What are the biggest impediments that we have to surmount, right? Because each of the services have been talking about doing this. And yet, uh, right, I mean, Eric Lipton uh, wrote an article uh, in the New York mm -hmm. Times talking a little bit about this, right? That right. we know what the future looks like, but we're still clinging on to a lot of capabilities from the past uh, or even approaches from the past. Um, uh, you know, And this is a conversation that in private, senior military leaders are more candid about maybe than they are uh, in public. We talked a little bit about that with Frank Kendall, right, who's working mm -hmm. to reorganize and reshape the Air Force and do it extremely rapidly because it's no longer really fit nor organized nor training nor doing all of these things for the threat that it faces. Uh, ultimately, right, what, what are the ways to sort of get us there? Because we sort of appreciate it, but we're right. still not doing it. Right. And I think, you know, the, the, the difficulty is much more with the uh, the Pentagon side or the headquarters side of the house. So when we talk to operational commanders and you've seen the examples, you know, they're, they've got, they're very creative about some of the solutions they want to pursue to their problems, partly because they have to be right. They've got near-term issues they want to solve, you know, with regard to threats they face today. Uh, they don't have the time, you know, to, to mount a long-term R and D project. Um, but back in the Pentagon, it's difficult for them to have a, they don't have a process for doing that near-term solution development. They've got a process for industrial <laughs> development of new capabilities. And it's hard for leaders, even when they've gone from the fleet back to the Pentagon, to you know figure out how to work outside that process. Because really what you have to do is set up this alternative process that's operating at a faster pace than what the traditional capital investments are working in. And you have to accept the fact that you're going to have these two processes working in parallel on different time cycles. Um, but that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges you see. And that's why you see inside of like OSD in particular, they're setting up these 
alternative paths to basically do faster turn development of systems of systems using existing you know technologies you're basically assembling you know capabilities to solve a current problem apollo 13 style um, and you're leveraging uh, a lot of the work that's been going on in terms of digital integration that CDAO has been leading. Um, there's some great programs out there. Uh, I would argue our agility or the uh, integration prime, uh, which um, Rev Jones is running out there for the Air Force that uses right. uh, stitches uh, to combine uh, different systems together, you know, using uh, software. I think that's the kind of effort that, you know, it, that the DoD is mounting to try to create this alternative faster turn duty cycle for you know, near-term acquisition or near-term solution development. And that almost becomes probably the, that should be a higher proportion, if not the bulk of the DOD's focus in terms of capability development. And a lot less focus needs to be paid to the kind of long-term capital projects that, you know, are going to happen in the background almost. Um, let me take you to Replicator. Um, there is a lot of obviously debate and discussion since the deputy secretary unveiled this at the Emerging Technologies Institute, NDIA's uh, new flagship conference, which was a, a knockout way uh, to start a new franchise. Although, um, you know, kudos to Dr. Mark Lewis, who was there, uh, who along with Arun, you know, launched it and Arun, uh, who's the current uh, executive director, uh, has has been uh, running forward with the ball. What 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 is it that we needed to do? Because Replicator in the past, you know, two weeks or so, you know, it's like anybody, everybody who looks at it sort of sees something a little bit different. For some, it's, hey, let's get a great idea and let's mass produce it. I think that there is an element where this, the deputy secretary has been clear that actually not, a lot of non-traditional, quote unquote, suppliers could be able to build uh, these platforms. What What is it that Replicator needs to do and do pressingly, right, in terms yeah. of delivering capability? And then I want yeah. to get into delivering the right capability right. in a moment as well. Yeah. So I think the other two, you know, I mean, just like we argued in our study, the two things that were interesting about um, Cathex' remarks were one, um, she highlighted they were going to solve near-term operational problems that combatant commanders were facing today. Um, and that was something that I think a lot of people glossed over because it seemed like a throwaway line. But in reality, that's a very significant change, right? Because if we're using the replicator to solve near-term problems, that means it's not going to be part of a long-term R&D requirements process. You know, the requirements and acquisition process we rely on to build ships and aircraft that are the last 50 years, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that's going to solve a near-term problem using something that we can get today that may not last for more than five or 10 years in the force and might get replaced because it's you know a technology that's likely to be evolving very quickly. So that, that focus on near-term problems, I think was really telling. And then the other element of it was uh, the fact that she you know talked about this not just being focused on you know one particular type of gadget. She brought up swarms and small and, and tritable, I think, to try to explain, to try to provide some you know, concrete picture of what it is that might be actually incorporated in here. But the focus was on more the integration of it, how we're going to bring it into the force and make it you know, viable as a contributor, not just throw a bunch of gadgets at the commander and say, you figure it out. Um, so I thought that you know, it was telling that she was highlighting you know, the, the idea we're focused on near-term needs and we're focused on integrating these into the force. Um, and I think you know, most of the media attention has been focused on the gadgets, which I think that's actually less important than the process that they're attempting to put together with Replicator. More often than not, uh, in our long relationship, we have ended up talking about range and payload. Uh, right. And everything about the Western Pacific is range and payload. E even if you, you know, even if you're, you know, you're getting close 
to uh, the first or second island chains, given the Chinese capabilities, you're going to be pushed a lot farther out. So you're going to have to outstick your adversaries in the immortal words of uh, Bob Work. Um, from your standpoint, are we developing the kind of systems uh, that we need to be developing in order to do what it is we need them to do, which is to project force in a very dangerous zone a lot farther ahead of our forces and to do it in an unmanned fashion where, uh, you know, as we heard on yesterday's show from uh, uh, Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, uh, you know, it's it, their air defense capabilities are ferocious. Uh, and, you know, the, the fact that the Russians have a permeable one is not exactly what the Chinese have built. Yeah, I think, um, you know, some things to take away from uh, that are, you know, this idea of going small and many uh, is, you know, would be interesting in environments where it's more permissive and you're operating at shorter ranges. So Ukraine can get away with small and many, um, you know, in the Pacific. Uh, the U.S. is going to be faced with, you know, operate most of its operating bases are going to be relatively far away. So you're talking hundreds of miles, maybe thousands of miles. Um, you know, so we need to think about, you know, maybe having complementary capabilities. So you're going to need longer range systems like uh, what the Air Force is talking about with some of its, uh, you know, unmanned collaborative aircraft or unmanned combat aircraft like the uh, Valkyrie. Um, and we'll talk about the uh, the. Uh, Blue Force Technologies uh, Fury aircraft here in a second, but these longer range aircraft are going to be needed and useful uh, for being able to deliver effects from ranges where you can have a base that's actually launching them uh, and not under attack necessarily by a large number of Chinese weapons. So you're going to need to complement that though with a bunch of shorter range systems that will need to be in closer. And so that kind of asks, begs the question of, well, who's launching these short range uh, aircraft or short range surface undersea systems? You know, and that's maybe the role that the stand-in force of the Marine Corps, or more importantly, maybe the multi-domain task force of the army, that's a function that they're performing uh, and creating a targeting problem for the Chinese who now would have to target and identify and hit you know, troops that are now in terrain, in cover and concealment. Um, so you've got to think about combine. We have to think about combining both those things. And I think uh, we've tended to focus on the long range systems because that mirrors the manned force that we've been you know familiar with. But we need to start complementing with this shorter range force. But we need to think about what's the operational concept and how are they actually going to be kept there, delivered there, moved there. You know, we can't just move all these things when the conflict starts because small and cheap is also slow. And so they're not going to be able to travel a long distance. Uh, you got to have them already pre-positioned or who's going to pay for that and who's going to maintain that. Those are good questions. And that gets the idea that integration is really important. It can't just be about buying a bunch of gadgets and then figuring out later how you're going to actually use them. Are the joint experimentation, testing, validation, intellectual rigor elements of this um, right? I mean, because it would seem like each of the services is doing their thing within their stovepipe as opposed to recognizing what it is they should be doing all collectively. And then I have one last right. follow up on Fury. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, and that's partly, yeah. So the services are all doing their own independent thing and they're oriented in different ways. So, you know, the service experimentation efforts are looking at kind of service equities, really. They're not looking at necessarily the joint problem. Um, so a couple of things that I think, you know, we're, we're seeing trends in that could improve that is one, the increasing use of digital and virtual systems to do the experimentation and concept development. So I can do a lot more reps if I'm doing, if I'm evaluating the utility of like small, cheap, uh, surface undersea, you know, air systems in a hellscape type of operational concept. If I'm doing it virtually, you know, using live virtual constructive 
systems that I would use for training, turning around and using them for developing the concepts and figuring out the system of system relationships. And then on the back end, you know, how do I, I can turn around and use that same uh, set of models to help me digitally integrate the final product when it's, when it's completed. Um, also that, you know, that enables you to maybe do some digital virtual testing of the system, as opposed to having that all be done in a physical environment that might take a long time. Um, so that's a one way that I think the DOD can get out of the stovepipes of the individual services. The other thing is what's going on in OSD with regard to Raider, which is the rapid develop rapid uh, development prototyping experimentation reserve. Um, that's changing to become much more of the graduation exercise, I think, for um, efforts to develop these systems of systems to solve near-term operational problems. So I could see Raider being like the testing ground for things like the replicator project. And you're going to see, right. um, you know, an increasing use of it for like solving real world current problems that the commanders are facing rather than being kind of what it has been, which is sort of a bottom up, you know, set of proposals from services and, you know, interesting ideas to go experiment with, but they're not tied to an operational problem commanders are trying to fix. So Raider is going to become much more intentional, I think, as we go further down the road. And uh, just one last word about Fury and um, the promise of it, yeah. uh, because obviously uh, the Andrel, uh folks, as well as others associated with the team, are pretty proud of an airplane that they claim is going to be fundamentally game-changing from a range, speed, payload, cost perspective. Yeah, and so you've seen, so Fury is a kind of an example of a ground-up uh, group five, you know, pretty large UAS that's uh, you know, got the speed and range that you would hope to get out of a, you know, long, out of a manned fighter, for example. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, the, the Air Force's efforts on unmanned collaborative aircraft um, thus far kind of focused on things like the Kratos uh, RQ-58 or XQ-58, which is a repurposed uh, target drone. So most of these systems were kind of repurposed target drones and things that don't necessarily have the speed um, and maneuverability that you'd expect out of a, out of a you know, kind of fifth generation or, or beyond fighter. And so, Blue for, the Blue Force technology system, the, you know, they Andrew acquired them. Um, the Fury can get you the kind of fighter-like performance that you're looking for if you want to have a aircraft as your your wingman, or you're going to have that aircraft go in and be a a complementary uh, contributor when you got a force package going downrange. Um, which I think, and the, with the price point that they think they're going to be at, I think it's uh, it offers the ability to get at what Frank Kendall's talking about in terms of we need mass um, right. and at long range. So they're from the places where you can actually operate these um, in a you know realistic environment. Um, this is going to be one of the you know few solutions that can do that. Um, the other one that might be out there also is the Ghost Bat, um, which is the you know the Boeing system they're developing down in Australia with Boeing Australia. Ryan, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on. Thanks again. My pleasure, Doug. Go great to be here.